Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. What would you try if you couldn't fail? What would you attempt if you were not afraid of failure? How would you live if you were 100% confident that you would never fail? Um, We're talking about confidence when we're talking about not failing. And and the Merriam-Webster online dictionary defines confidence as a feeling of one's power or of reliance on one's circumstances. And so when we talk about confidence, we're talking about I have the ability to do it, something inward, or something outward. Did you notice it said reliance on one's circumstances? I I know this is going to happen. I know it's going to work out that way. But but sometimes um, the Bible kind of flips us upside down when we talk about confidence. I mean, one of the problems with self-confidence is that it can turn so inward. Like we, we look at ourselves too deeply and too often. And it's almost like we're navel-gazing, right? We're navel-gazing, like almost that we're the gift to humanity. And we try and find this confidence in and of ourselves. And I know that a lot of us are wrestling through mental health, but one of my concerns with confidence that only comes from inwardly is we tend to ignore the bad things about ourselves so that we can be confident. We talk ourselves out of who we really are. And so self-confidence isn't a bad thing, but there's weaknesses to it. Not only that, but when we talk about confidence in outward things, there's problems with that as well. Because one thing I've learned in life is I'm not in control of much. I'm not very confident that anything I plan for the rest of the day will actually happen because I just know how life works, right? It goes sideways, bad stuff happens. Hurricanes come, right? We're not that in control of our circumstances. Sometimes you even feel like you don't have the ability to do anything to affect any change. Have you ever felt that way? Today, we hear sort of an alternative view of what it means to be confident. Not an inward confidence, not even an outward confidence, but an upward confidence, a God confidence. And when we talk about a God confidence, what we're talking about is a faith or belief that God will act, that God will do what he says he will do, that he will be effective in implementing all of his promises and everything he's committed himself to do. And here's the thing, God actually wants you to have a confidence in him. God wants you to have an upward God confidence. He wants you to have assurance that he will keep his promises. He wants you to fully believe that he will do everything he has committed himself to do. He wants you to believe that he will follow through and show up. He wants you to be confident in him. Today, as we look at this story about Gideon, we're gonna see this, that God is committed to grow our confidence in him. That God is committed to grow our confidence in him. Now, if you've got your judge's journal, we're on page 28. We're gonna be in chapters six 
and 7. And as we go through this text, we are going to skip over some verses just so we can get through the whole story. I want you to see the sweep of this, these two chapters. And so if you're on chapter 6 on verse 28, we're going to start off by looking at something that sounds very familiar because we've read it before in verses 1 and 2. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We've heard that so many times already. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and strongholds. Now, as I said, we've had a repeated pattern here. Israel doesn't just sin a little bit. They begin following the gods of the land that the, of the land where they live, the land that God gave them. And God has said, you can't do that. We have an agreement on how this goes. I will be your God and you will be my people. But every time Israelite does something evil by following the gods of the Canaanites, God says, you must wake up to what you're doing. And so he brings in a foreign enemy to take them over. And this time it's the Midianites and this time it's bad. What happens in the following verses is we find out that the Midianites come in to the people's land and they destroy all the crops and they confiscate all the livestock. They leave the land desolate of food and the people of God are starving. Read verse six. Verse six says, so Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now what typically happens in the book of Judges is when the people cry out, God raises up a deliverer to save them. But as the book goes on, it gets darker and darker and Israel's sin gets deeper and deeper. And at this moment, God doesn't raise up a deliverer to save them. He raises up a prophet to rebuke them. Verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, verse 8, the, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and all the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. Rather than raising up a judge to deliver them, he sends a prophet to rebuke them. And the prophet says, what are you doing? This is the God who saved you from Egypt. It's the one who rescued you from oppression. It's the God who gave you your freedom. Have confidence in him. He will provide for you do not fear, do not revere, do not live for the gods of the Canaanites. Live for the one true God. But you did not listen. See, one of the problems is they didn't have confidence in God to provide for them, so they began to find confidence in the gods of the Canaanites. But God is still committed to grow our confidence in him, even when we fail. And sometimes he does that by confronting our wrongfully placed fears. Some, sometimes 
we give ourselves over to things that are not God, but we treat them as if they're God. We'll talk more about that later. But when we do that, we wrongfully place our confidence in something that we're not meant to be confident in. One of the reasons that Israel is not changing, one of the reasons that they're spiraling downward is they fear the consequences of their sin rather than fearing sin itself. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Now, what that means, we have a little chart that shows you the difference. If you can put that next slide up. Worldly sorrow and regret wrongly fears only painful consequences of sin. Where godly sorrow and repentance rightly fears how sin caused God offense and damages our relationship with him. Worldly sorrow and regret changes behavior only enough to avoid the consequences where godly sorrow and repentance changes behavior out of love for God. Worldly sorrow and regret stays regretful because sin has made life worse. But godly sorrow and repentance actually finds new joy, new life, new confidence, because turning from sin means finding new life and deepen relationship with God. Tim Keller summarized it this, this way. When we realize that God has forgiven us and we haven't lost him, we feel that earthly results are rather small in comparison. What's the point? Uh, God is committed to grow our confidence in him by exposing when we put the, our confidence in the wrong things and helping us turn back to him helping us not just feel regretful about the, the, the consequences of sin, but rather repentant towards him. And when you turn to him, he always accepts you back, which is meant to build your confidence in God, that he's absolutely committed to you even when you fail him miserably. Where in your life might you be seeing the cycle of sin, the cycle of sin not broken, because you're just trying to avoid the consequences rather than turn to God. That's something for us all to think about because we all go there. Verse 11, we are introduced to this character, the military leader, the judge, Gideon. Verse 11 and 12 say, the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. That's Gideon's dad, the Abizarite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now it's interesting that the angel shows up to Gideon and calls him a valiant warrior because he's really anything but that. When you threshed wheat, you did it in the open. And the point was to separate the edible part of the wheat from the non-edible part of the wheat by allowing the wind to sweep through and take off the non-edible part, and then you were just left with what you could eat. But the fact that Gideon's not threshing wheat on a threshing floor outside, but he's in a deep, dark wine press, means he's not really a valiant warrior. In fact, he's just trying to survive, because he knows that the Midianites come and they find that wheat, they will take it from him. 
So we really shouldn't be too harsh on him because he's just trying to provide food for himself and his family. But the angel of the Lord appears and says, valiant warrior. Well, Gideon doesn't tap into that part. He, he hears this phrase, the Lord is with you. And he has problems with that phrase. In fact, he gives it right back to this angel. In, in verse 13, he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? And they said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Gideon doesn't have any confidence that God is with him. And the reason is, is because there's such difficult circumstances that he's living in. And he doesn't see God working miraculously like when he brought the people out of Egypt. Now, you can relate to that, can't you? When you're in the midst of the difficult circumstances and you hear, I will never leave you nor forsake you, your first thought is, is that true? If God's really with me, why is life so hard? Or maybe you're walking faithfully with Christ and you just haven't really seen anything spectacular. You haven't seen anybody come to know the Lord in a while. You haven't seen really in your own heart a lot of growth. And you go, why does it seem so plain? Why, where is the Lord? Well, the angel answers Gideon's question by not answering the question. He says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him, and notice it's not the angel of the Lord, but the Lord himself. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Now, this isn't exactly what Gideon wanted to hear. Uh, Gideon said, hey, we're having some problems and we need you to deliver us from these problems. And the angel says, well, you're gonna be the one that delivers them through the problems. Gideon says, where's someone like Moses to help us? And the Lord says to him, I'm gonna raise you up as the next Moses. Uh, can you relate though? At this moment, Gideon has no confidence in God. But the angel of the Lord, the Lord through this angel says something very specific. He says, Go with the strength that is in you. And we've tried to figure out what this means. Does this mean that God sees some sort of potential in Gideon that Gideon doesn't see? Or does it mean that Gideon's only strength is the fact that the Lord is with him? Or does it mean a mixture of both? We'll find that out as we go on. Verse 15, Gideon does not like this new calling on his life. He said to the, to the Lord, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. So listen, we're part of this tribe that's not really a big deal. And not only that, but in that tribe, my family's not a big deal. But even in that, I'm not that big of a deal in my family. We are the weakest. I am the weakest. We should not, I should not be the one to do this. Then Gideon, who has no confidence in what the angel of the Lord has said, in verse 17 says, if I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Next page, please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he, he's like an angel of the Lord and the Lord at the same time, said, I will stay until you return. 
Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but, but Gideon here is asking for a sign from God. It's not enough that God showed up and spoke to him. He still wants a sign from God. He's challenged God. He's made excuses when God's talked to him, and he's doubted promises. And so he says, listen, I need to do a sign. So Gideon goes, and he gets some meat, he gets some bread, and he gets some broth. And he brings it back to this person who he's not quite sure who he is. And Gideon puts the meat and the broth and the bread on this stone And the angel of the Lord takes his staff and he touches the stone. And basically there's so much fire that comes out of the stone that the bread and the meat and the broth are just charred on the spot. And then the angel of the Lord just vanishes. You can imagine Gideon going, wait, what just happened here? Verse 22, he realizes that he's been in the presence of God. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. And it is still in Ophrah of the Aborazites today. When Gideon realizes that he's been in the presence of God, his confidence is absolutely shattered because he realizes just like that food was charred, so he should have been burnt up because God is holy. But yet God speaks to him in a way that gives him appropriate fear and appropriate confidence. He says, do not worry, the Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. And Gideon takes that to heart. In fact, he creates an altar, a place of worship, and he names it, the Lord is peace. We're already seeing something shift in Gideon. Do you remember just a page ago, he was like, I'm from the worst tribe and the worst family in that tribe, and I'm the lowest member in that family. And now his confidence is being grown, not because that's changed, but because he's realizing who the Lord is. The Lord is peace. He's not focused on his own shortcomings, but on God's character. He's not focused on his social position, but God's peace. God is growing confidence in Gideon by revealing his character to him. And he does the same thing with us. God wants you to be confident in who he is. And that's why we know through the scriptures, God's character. God wants you to be confident that he is peace. God wants you to be confident that he is love. God wants you to be confident that he is justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion and salvation. God is committed to grow our confidence in him by revealing his character to us. And you need that, and Gideon's going to need that, because next the Lord calls him to do something quite radical. The Lord wants to shift the entire confidence of Gideon's tribe. And so he says in the next verses, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and take your father's livestock. Now remember, livestock's quite an item because everyone's starving. And then I want you to go, and I want you to go to your father's 
altars that are two false gods. And I want you to tear those down. Just tear them down. And, and then I want you to take the wood from those altars to false gods, and I want you to create an altar for me, the true God. And then I want you to sacrifice your dad's bull on that altar. And Gideon's like, whoa, okay. That's a lot uh, you're asking me to do, God. Um, okay, so Gideon does it, but he does it at night. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him because he was too, what? Afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime. But we're seeing something change in Gideon. He's gone from hiding all alone to now still fearful, but he's willing to obey. And I find that helpful. Because sometimes when we're called to obey the Lord, we do it with shaking hands and trembling feet. But the way that you know you have confidence in God is you're still willing to obey even though you're afraid, even though you're fearful. Where might God be calling you to obey him even though you are afraid? Well, Gideon has a right reason to be afraid because the next morning, the people of the village, they find this mess. They find that all the altars have been torn down and there's now a, a, an altar to the one true God and, idiot, and Gideon's dad's bulls are sacrificed on it. So they form like a CSI team and they're like, who did this? And they figure out it was Gideon, Joash's kid. And so the people of the town are ticked off and they're like, let's kill this guy, Gideon. But surprisingly, Joash, his dad, who owned the bulls that were killed, who owned the altars to the false god, he steps in. And he says, well, let's think about this for a minute. If Baal's real, if these false gods are real, why didn't they defend themselves? And says, let's let them contend for themselves. And changes Gideon's name to let Baal contend with him. In other words, Gideon's name gets changed from Gideon to basically the one who fights with false gods. When he was terrified to do so, God has showed up in that circumstance in a way that is giving Gideon more confidence in God. Even as he's fearful, he obeys and God shows up and his dad switches sides. Gideon's confidence in God is growing. Verse 33, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and people of the east gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the Jezreel Valley. In other words, it's not just one people group that's against Israel. They've got a whole coalition of people. The spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon, and he blew the ram's horn, and the Abezerites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. The author's trying to tell us there's a battle coming. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel by me, as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by me as you said. And that is what happened. 
When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Now, this little part of the story is one of the most misunderstood parts of the Christian life. Um, we, got this, we get this phrase called, let's put out a fleece. But really, um, we need to understand what's happening. Gideon doesn't need direction. He even in this says, I know what to do. I just don't have the confidence that you're going to show up when I do it. Uh, Gideon doesn't have confidence in God. God has told him what he will do. He has promised his presence. He has already done miracles and reversed the culture of his hometown. And Gideon still doesn't believe. And so Gideon says, look, I'm going to put out, um, I'm going to put out this piece of cloth on the ground. And when I put it out in the morning, it should be wet, but the ground around it shouldn't be wet, God. And if that's how it works out, then I'll know you're really with me. For Gideon, this is not something that is meant to express his faith. Rather, this shows us his lack of faith. He's still afraid. He's still not confident in God. And I think sometimes as Christians, we, we use this phrase, I'm gonna put out a fleece and see what God does. I mean, I've done that. You know, even when I was a little kid, and I used to go in the front yard and I'd shoot baskets and I'd go back and I'd, you know, I was just aware of girls at that time. And so I'd get the ball and I'd be like, Lord, I'm going to shoot a three-pointer. And if it goes in, that means she likes me. <laughs> Come on, you know, you've done something like that too. So, you know, you shoot and then it's an air ball and you're like, Lord, best two out of three. I mean, really, we could just sort of make up anything and hold God to something that he never says he's going to be held to. For Gideon, this isn't a practice of faith, but a lack of faith. He doesn't believe God. I mean, Jesus himself says that we don't really have the right to, to test God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, he's encountered by Satan. The devil takes Jesus to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus says, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So Satan says to Jesus, like throw yourself off and if you're really God, God will catch you. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not how it works. It, it, that's not a faith practice, but a lack of faith. Yet in this story, God is so committed to Gideon, he's so committed to, go, to grow Gideon's confidence in him that he obliges Gideon. In fact, he does it twice. In verse 39, Gideon says like, please, please don't be mad at me, but can we do the opposite now? Like, can I put the fleece out and let's this time make the ground wet, but the fleece dry? And, uh, and God obliges him because Gideon has no faith. Verse 40, that night God did as Gideon requested, only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. So, so again, this practice of putting out a fleece is an example of, isn't an example of how to express faith. Rather, it's an example of a man who has no faith, but God's still committed to him. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the troops, troops were with him, got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, 
below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, catch this, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Now, announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 out of 32,000, 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. God is so committed to making sure that Gideon's confidence is only in him, so that Gideon can't say, I saved myself, that he actually cuts the army down by two-thirds, from 32,000 to 10,000. But he looks at the army, God looks at the army and says, there's still too many. Uh, Send all the troops to go to the river and drink. And if some drink this way and some drink that way, we're gonna separate them out and send them home. So God looks and there's 300 that drink one way out of the river and there's like 9,700 that drink the other way. Now, if I was an army general, I'd keep the 9,700, but that's not what God does. God sends the 9,700 home and only keeps 300 so that Gideon will fight the battle with his confidence only in God. They are at 450 to one odds. Their army has gone down by a 99% reduction so that Gideon's only confidence will be in God. But here's the crazy thing as we get to the end of the story. It's at this moment when Gideon has no resources that it brings out his deepest confidence in God and the best in him. In verse eight, The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That night, the Lord said to him, get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. But if you're afraid to attack the camp, go down with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon sneaks into this camp with tens of thousands of soldiers, just him and one man, and they're listening sneaking around, hiding behind the tents, and they hear one Midianite soldier say, bro, I had this dream. And in this dream, this like roll of bread came through our camp and like knocked a bunch of stuff over. And the other dude, the other Midianite is like, I know what that means. That must be Gideon. He's gonna kill us all. And Gideon's hearing this and his confidence is going up because he sees that the Lord is in this. They're calling Gideon a mighty warrior and the dude hasn't even been in a battle yet. It's crazy. He still hasn't fought in a battle. He's still marked more by fear, but God is committed to growing his confidence in God. God reassures Gideon over and over and over again that God will do what he said he's gonna do. And God is that committed to you. Over and over and over. God is willing to reassure you. Just like we tell our children that we love them every day. It's not enough that we just say it once, right? They need our assurance. So God wants to reassure you every day. Romans 8, 16 reminds us that God put the Holy Spirit in us to remind us and testify that we are God's children. One of the reasons that God put himself in you, this Holy Spirit in you, is so that you could be reminded daily, I'm a child of God. Not not only that, but Jesus reminds us that he's always with us. 
In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, in the Great Commission, he commands his disciples and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, remember I am with you always to the ends of the age. God reassures us of his love and commitment to us because that gives us confidence in him. And it's at this very moment when Gideon's confidence is highest in God that he's at his best. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He's only aware of God. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Here's the guy that we found hiding in the wine press, speaking to 300 soldiers that are about to go up against tens of thousands of soldiers, saying, God will do it. Follow me in the battle. What a change we've seen in him. He's the most confident in leading others at the exact same moment that he's most humble before God. And it's not that Gideon has made a change. It's that God's commitment to Gideon gives Gideon the confidence in God. And there he's at his best because with his confidence in God, he comes up with a brilliant military plan. Verse 16, then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horn, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held the torches in their hands and the ram's horns to blow on their right hands and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army began to run and they cried out as they fled. Gideon splits his army into three groups of 100 to face tens of thousands. And he sends them at night to different parts of the camp. He waits till the guards are switching so that everyone might be confused about who is who. They all, 300 of them, blow their ram's horns. Can you imagine waking up and hearing 300 ram's horns and you have no idea what's going on? And at the same time, they break their vases so all you hear is, glass shattering and ram's horns blowing and people screaming for the Lord and for Gideon. And they're terrified. 300 men against tens of thousands. They're terrified. See, see, it's at this moment that something comes out of Gideon because he has confidence in God. It's at this moment that we actually see he's kind of a military genius. But that wouldn't have been available to him if he was still in that wine press before he met the Lord. And it's with the confidence in God that he comes to his place of greatness. But not because he's great, 
But because the Lord's committed. Because the Lord's committed. But then just to remind us that it's all about the Lord, verse 22 says, when Gideon's men blew the 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men in the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to Ekesia house in the direction of Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, near Tabath. Tried to make it through that. But you see here, as they implement Gideon's plan, the Lord is with them, and the Lord causes the chaos, even as Gideon comes up with a brilliant plan. It was God. God is committed to grow our confidence in him. Not because you're confident, but because he's committed. Even when you fail, even when you're hiding, even when you're fearful, God is still committed to you. What are our takeaways from this story? If God is committed to grow our confidence in him, would you be willing to let go of some of your idols if you knew God wouldn't fail? I mean, one of the reasons Israel keeps going back to these idols is they don't, they're not confident in God. And they want something they can put their hands on. God's so committed to you that he's going to confront our wrongly placed respective idols because it keeps us from being confident in him. Would you be willing to take your hands off of the things that you make ultimate things? Would you be willing to take your hands off your idols and have confidence in God? Here's another question for you. What would you attempt if you were certain of God's character? God reveals his love and his presence and his promises so that we can live with certainty about who he is. And when we're certain about who he is, we live boldly. What would you attempt if you were certain of who God was? And how would you live if you had confidence that God is committed to you? Over and over, God reassures us of his absolute commitment to us as his people so we can live with confidence in him. We don't have to wonder when we wake up every morning, does God love me? Is he for me? Will he use me? Yes, yes, yes. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He's committed to you. And we see the most of this through Jesus. We know God won't fail. We know we can be certain of his character. We know we can have confidence in him because we know and believe Jesus. In Jesus, we know the very character of God. Jesus was God on earth. In Jesus' cross, we are witnesses to the decisive battle plan against sin, against overwhelming odds. Jesus was committed and defeated sin and death on the cross in the empty tomb. Jesus is always with us. Jesus always comforts our fears. Jesus is the one who makes us sons and daughters. Jesus is the one who calls us beloved. Jesus is committed to making us more like him. When you begin to see Jesus' commitment to you as his people, you can't help but have confidence, not in yourself, not that things are gonna go the way you want, but in who he is and his commitment to you. And when you get that through your brain and when you get it into your heart, you will live confidently. What would, how would you live if you had absolute confidence?
hearts. Jesus. Something to think about this week. Let's pray. We'll see you next week. <laughs>